0: Good morning, everyone. If you are here today because you have heard that Old North has a senior pastor who is young, articulate, good-looking, faithful gospel guy. I haven't made a joke yet, and I'm not sure why you're all laughing. (laughs) I guess we'll move on. (laughs) Forget it. I'm not going to tell you. Um, Good morning. My name is Marty. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm uh, glad to be up here, uh, although it's an unusual circumstance. Um, Pastor Nick is sick, his whole family is sick, and very sick. So we want to lift them up, that God will keep them and hold them and increase his faith um, in the midst of this time. But I got the 11th hour notice that I needed to step up and preach. And, uh, and so that's what uh, I'm up here to do this morning. So what you'll need this morning for us to make this work, you'll need your Bible open. And you'll need your compass uh, flipped to the back. So just a couple preliminaries as we get going here. On the back of your compass, there's notes for a sermon. And you can notice there, you can scratch out Philippians 4, 2 through 9. And instead put up there Mark 2, 1 through 17. Because that's what we we'll are preaching on this week. Now... I'm grateful to hear, it brings me joy to hear that so many of you are following along in the sermon series by reading the passage before you come to church to prepare your hearts and minds. So what you want to do is at the very bottom down there, underneath the notes, it says next week's sermon text will be, go ahead and put in that Philippians 4, 2 through 9. So that if you're those who prepare by reading, this is, you can make sure you prepare in the right passage. And if you've never done that before, this is a great week to start. You have a little head start here. So scratch that out for me, put in Mark. And then the other thing you'll need, of course, is the Bible open. Um, certainly, you didn't come here to hear me give opinions. We came here to hear God speak through his word, and we believe that when we have the Bible open and try to explain his word faithfully. So we'll go into Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. If you don't have a Bible with, your, with you this morning, feel free to take one out in front of you and uh, go to page 837. 837. 837. It's, this reminds me, of the, la- the very first time I preached here at Old North Church was just about five years ago under the very same circumstance. <laughs> Although it was actually later, Pastor Brent then called me at 7 o'clock that morning and said, Let's go ahead, you go ahead and preach. And in, Mar- in the world of common sense, according to Marty Sweeney, I decided to preach in the hardest passage in the Bible uh, Joshua 12, the list of 31 kings that Moses killed. You know, that made complete sense to me at the time. And so I did not decide to do that today. Maybe that's a sense of my slight bit of progress being shown that I chose a gospel. Um, So we're in Mark chapter 2. And I say all that just to not to ask for your sympathy at all, but to ask for your attention to God's word, because he does speak faithfully and clearly, despite the lack of preparation. And I just ask for your forbearance this morning as uh, hopefully I can uh, present to you, open up the scriptures to you so you can hear him. So let's pray and ask God for his help. Indeed, we need it. Father God, we do thank you for this morning that you have preserved your word and your holy Bible. We thank you, Lord, that you have sent your spirit to be with us always and especially as we gather together your name like we are doing this morning. We ask, Lord, that together word and spirit will... This morning, quicken our hearts and minds um, so that we may love you more today as a result of spending time in your word. So that, Lord, please, we may be conformed to the image of your great son. So that, Lord, we may be found faithful in the work you have for us while we're here on this earth. So that we may, Lord, imitate Jesus in all respects. Please help us. We need your help. Be with us this morning. Keep our thoughts attentive to you. And, your, and my thoughts, Lord, please may they be clear for all of us so that we can grow up into maturity. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness and your mercies. In your son's name we pray this. Amen. Now the last time I preached here, I think it was back in October, I revealed to you, those of you who are here, the one statement that revolutionized my Bible reading. The one simple statement that when someone told me this years ago changed how I read the Bible. Um, and it's a simple statement, and it's something I think it's worth reminding you of this morning. And if you weren't here, then you get to be in on it as well. And that statement I want to I say to you before we read our scripture, and I'll tell you why. And that statement is this. When you read the Bible, look for the surprise in the text. And I think that's especially true when we approach a gospel I grew up in God's kindness. I grew up in a Christian family in a good church hearing these stories from infancy of Jesus and his way with the world and how God sent him into the world. And maybe you've read the gospels many times, and so this little statement that I gave to you this morning is especially helpful because we, while we know and we think we know it's important to pay attention, we get kind of callous. We know the stories, we've heard them before. So I want to tell you the statement. Look for the surprise in the text. And let's actually showcase how that works out this morning. And so this little compass note thing here is going to be helpful for you this morning. Because what I want you to do is just divide it up into thirds. And the very first one, I'm just going to give you the outline of our sermon here this morning, our time together. It's kind of like a Bible study. As you do some work, as you listen to God's word being read. So the the very top, you can put something like surprise number one. And in the middle, you could put surprise number two. And then the, the bottom part, you can put the connection, uh, because we have a story here, or we have a passage this morning that has two stories. So we're going to look for a surprise in the first story, verses one through twelve, and then the second story, verses thirteen through seventeen. And then we're going to see if we can figure out why they're there together in the gospel. Why did Mark put them together? Okay. So as I read, as you hear God's word being read, you feel free to note down what you what surprised you when you heard it in these texts. In this text. And we'll work on this together. So here we go. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. I'm sorry, And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and, he's, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his his disciples, for they were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. All right, so there you go. What surprises did you see in the text? And why are these two passages put together? I mean, we know Mark, he could have said a lot of things. Certainly he put them together because they happened after the other, but lots of things happened. Why did Mark put those together here in this spot? Well, as we read this morning, and I imagine you, uh, you can see in this passage that these are quite rich stories. Verses 1 through 12 gives us a story of a healing, and then verses 13 through 17, a story of a, of a calling. And in between the two, as, as I read this, you may have picked up that this section really is all about sin and forgiveness. Verses 5, 10, 16, and 17 all speak of those words there. I mean, you have a man laid up on a map, dropped through the ceiling to be healed. You have a tax collector minding his own business, doing his work, immediately giving up his job and his power to follow Jesus. These aren't everyday stories. But their peculiarity is not the basis for the surprise this morning. So let's look at this. Verses 1 through 12. Surprise number one, the paralyzed man. Jesus is in town. He's done some amazing things out and about, but he's come back to Capernaum and he's encamped at home. And no doubt, the crowds that Mark speaks of, that are gathering around him, pressing in on this small house, they're crowding around him because they've heard he's done some amazing things. In chapter one alone in Mark's gospel, Mark tells us that he's cast out a demon, healed many people, and cleaned up a leper. But according to Mark chapter one, verse 38, you can put your eyes up there on that passage, Jesus never intended to draw big crowds by working miracles. He came because he wanted to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so that's indeed what he's doing here in our, in our passage this morning. You see there verse 2 that he was preaching the word to them. Now, on the scene comes a paralyzed man. He has some wonderful friends, doesn't he? I mean, he, they try to get him to the house where Jesus is, but they're too late. It's jam-packed. It's too crowded. They can't get in. But because they really believe that Jesus is the man to go to if your legs don't work, they decided to pull off something that I think only maybe MacGyver could do. I apologize. That's a bit of a dated reference, isn't it? Like, God. I don't know, what's a, like, a modern or Jack Bauer, maybe? On, well, it's sad that I know I'm really old when my updated references to dated references are still 10 years old. So you figure it out, those you youngins, and do all what you do on Google, MacGyver's a pretty cool guy. Only he could figure out how to get five men on a roof to hold them, but figure out how to dig through it, a hole big enough to lower a man laying flat on a mat down through the roof. That's pretty impressive. Now Jesus is standing there, no doubt the dirt and the clay and the sand was coming down on his head and all those around him and I'm sure there's little chance that Jesus could continue on with his sermon and no doubt everyone around them was wondering what was going on. And yet through the ruckus, Jesus still receives him warmly. But that's not really the big surprise. The big surprise comes there in verse 5. Did you see that when you, we you first read through it? Here in the middle of Jesus' sermon, a man enters the scene, obviously crippled, obviously desperate. No doubt, destitute, and this paralyzed man come inching down from above. No doubt, every single person in this room, surely some of them, and maybe all of them, said, "Ha!" Tap their name, and now this—this this is the reason we came out. We finally get to see this miracle worker in action. I mean, there we go. Let's see if he's the real deal. So the crowds wait in anticipation. Or perhaps change your point of view a bit and think of this poor, paralyzed man laying there. Maybe, just maybe, I'm not sure, but maybe I get to walk for the first time. (laughs) I mean, I see people walking, running to the marketplace back and forth every day. I've never done that. Maybe this is the day I finally can get my life. Now, with all that tension, with all that drama, with all those expectations, Jesus mouths these most amazing words in verse 5. My son, your sins are forgiven. Wait a second. I'm sure the murmurs started. What did he say? Did he just tell this young man that his sins are forgiven? Or think about the point of view again of the, the young man on the mat. Maybe as Christians who know the story, we'd have to admit that We'd be slightly let down, wouldn't we? I mean, thanks, Jesus. I I really appreciate your absolution, but what about my legs? See, faced with such high drama and a very impressionable crowd, Jesus did what this man most desperately needed. He forgave him. Now that's surprising. Shocking, in fact, isn't it? Now, the scribes and Pharisees, they were shocked because Jesus had the audacity to claim to do something that only God could do. Jesus was proclaiming that he himself to be the same level as God, the creator of all the universe, Yahweh himself, the only one who could do such a thing. Jesus was making this claim, and they rightly asked there, who can forgive sins but God alone? And the answer, of course, is no one. So Mark is waving his author's hand and saying, don't miss this, friends. Jesus is saying he is God. Jesus has the power and authority that only God does. Now, knowing that some in the crowd didn't believe him, Jesus asked the question there in verse 9. Look down there. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your mat and walk? Walk. Of course, it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because no one could prove or disprove that it actually happened. If I say to Lynn down there in the front row, Lynn, your sins are forgiven. No one could prove me right or wrong. So there in verse 11, we see that Jesus tells the young man there laying down, get up and walk. And that's exactly what he did. He rose up and immediately went out before them, walking right by them to the astonishment of everyone in the room. But with all of that, it's quite easy to miss that big surprise. Did you notice in verse 10 there, what Jesus' reason for healing the man? As he says, to demonstrate that he had the power to forgive. That's right. The shocking statement to those poor people and this destitute man laying down, paralyzed, is that he indeed had a real problem, but it had nothing to do with his legs. It was his sin that was a real problem. See, Mark wants us to see very clear early on here that Jesus' mission isn't simply to heal heal our bodily ills or to help us with our problems of this world, Those kinds of help and healing will only lead to temporary help. And eventually we still have those problems and we will die. Jesus came to heal us of a far greater sickness. That's our spiritual illness. That ones ones that lead to spiritual death and eternal loss and forfeiture of all this great kingdom that he's been preaching. Would all be gone unless we're healed of this problem, of this disease. He's come to do something far greater and far more important than to heal our physical bodies. Jesus didn't come to iron out the problems in this world and the difficulties in our lives, but to give us a hope of a future kingdom, a better world where there'll be no sin or sickness or dying or disease or tears or suffering. His mission was to preach about this world so that we believe one day it will come and it's only in him we get entrance into that world. And that's why this story is right here in Mark chapter 2. Because Mark knows his readers, and in God's spirit and inspiration, he knew us even today, when he wrote this gospel, that he knew that we would, if we read chapter 1, we'd get the impression that Jesus was simply an amazing miracle worker. And that, boy, maybe he'll do something for me like that. See, Mark isn't content With a Jesus seen only as a great teacher, a miracle worker, or even only as a great king, though he spends much of the rest of the gospel telling us about that, he wants to make sure here in this little snapshot that we see a different angle, a different portrait of Jesus, that all fits together, but it's a different view, that he is the great physician. And that's why he gives us that amazing statement there in verse 17. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners, those who have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus indeed came to heal, but his healing was of a completely different kind than most anyone thought that they needed. He came to heal sin sick sinners. Now let's think about that for a minute, because this is a surprise that may change everything you think about Christianity, indeed everything you think about what's needed for the world. Because the basic need that everyone has, have, even those who have the misfortune and have terrible illnesses of physical limitations or diseases and the like, but everyone together has a need that they need forgiven. See, I imagine a good number of us here this morning are dominated by those kinds of concerns of this world, right? Physical needs, financial needs, relational needs. Think about your prayer life for the last week. What dominated your requests? Think about your small group's prayer list. What dominates those requests? Expanding out beyond ourselves. Think about the worries for our country or other countries and continents around the world. Maybe perhaps we get so tied down into politics. Because we have legitimate concerns about the physical well-being of ourselves and those around us now and for the future. And I know many of us here this morning would say, yeah, we got it, Marty. We know sin's the most important thing to worry about and think about and deal with. It's easy to say that, but I just wonder if we scratch the surface, if you scratch my surface, you would see that my anxieties, my prayer list, so much of what I spend time thinking and money on showcases that I really don't believe that's the greatest need that I have. I really don't believe that Jesus came for a future hope. My hunch is that you get the strong impression about my life and dare I say your life, that the immediate needs Showcase the greatest needs of your life. Physical health and material wealth. But thank God, thank God for that man born paralyzed, right? Because if our dear brother was with us this morning, I could take that mic and interview him. I would say without a doubt, he would say, despite his life up to that point, full of destitution and hopelessness, that he would say that I'm so grateful that I was born paralyzed. It was worth every minute because if I hadn't been paralyzed, I never would have went to seeing Jesus. My friends wouldn't have taken me there. I never would have realized that I had a deeper need, that I needed cured of a sickness. I never would have known it. And if I never would have known it, there's no chance that I would have been healed. That is forgiven. But we're so pressed in the walls caving in on our immediate concerns, that it never really occurs to us, at least not with the gravity it should be, that the real diagnosis we need is one that we are sin-sick sinners and that we need forgiveness. Now if you're here this morning and for the first time the Lord is impressing upon you and dawning upon you that this is the greatest need that you have, I can just ask, could I ask you maybe, don't let this moment go by. Come down and talk to one of us after the service. We'll be up front, pastors and elders, to talk to you about this. You do not want to let the Spirit's impression upon you go by um, without doing something about it, because there is something we can do, and we see that we have the great physician right here. See, one of the great things that the Christian gospel does, it not only tells us it meets our biggest need of our life, but it actually faces us and forces us to face the diagnosis. To face and own up to this terrible diagnosis. And that's why the world hates the gospel when it first hears it. Romans says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. But thank God later it says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord indeed will be saved to the praise and glory of our father and his son Jesus. Surprise number one, sin is the greatest need and forgiveness is the greatest need. All right, let's move on to surprise number two, verses 13 through 17. All right, if you were to read chapters one and two in Mark, and no doubt you could just glance through the, the headlines there, the editorial headlines there of each section, you get a sense what's going on. Something big is starting to happen. There's a movement going on. Amazing things are happening, I've already mentioned. Crowds are gathering in to see and hear this man, Jesus. The word is spreading out around all the towns in Galilee and area. And so Jesus knows for this movement to expand, he has to have some helpers. So in chapter one, verses 16 through 20, he starts to build a team to spread the movement outward. Now, it is an unlikely team, but it's full of everyday Joes, right? But not a ghastly team, just everyday normal people. But then comes chapter two, verses 13 through 17. In front of large, a large crowd, he calls his disciples together and in front of them, showcasing it all, he brings them together. Imagine being in that little circle, knowing everybody's listening in and watching. Jesus says, hey guys, I need your help. I want to enlarge our circle to get more movement outward. I'm thinking about calling and enlisting Levi. Imagine the shock on their faces. Even the disciples themselves had to be looking around and wondering, what's everybody think about this? To choose a man like Levi was to put the entire enterprise at risk, its work and its reputation. It'd be kind of like Donald Trump bringing in to shape up the government the former Enron team to run everything. Right? But it's actually worse than that. The Jews beheld the tax collectors just like thieves and murderers. They couldn't accept money from them. They couldn't. Their testimony couldn't be used in court. It would have been like the Jews thought of those moles in World War II who ratted out fellow Jews to send them to concentration camps. Tax collectors were despicable, terrible human beings. And Jesus said, guys, what do you think? Let's call Levi. So this pick of Levi just confirms one more thing to the religious establishment of the day, that this man, Jesus, is a maniac. He's nuts. He's off his rocker. But what Mark wants us to see so clearly this morning is that the truth is that Jesus is God and he is free to choose whomever he wants. It's not much different than 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you, but it says a similar thing. For your calling, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And as a result of this kind of underground movement, Christians of the first few centuries were made up of the rabble, people who were nothing. And I think the danger for us here today in 21st century America, especially here, is that we really don't consider ourselves of such lowly estate, do we? We kind of think that you know, God chose me, and yeah, I didn't have it all together, but I had something. I had some promise, and some gifts and abilities that, you know, he saw in me, and, you know, those were on the table, and he saw those, and he chose me. Maybe I'll use a more modern illustration at this point. Those of you who heard of LeVar Ball, (laughs) the sports uh, world has lit a flame these last few weeks, uh, this father of the UCLA star team lost this weekend of this, his son Lonzo ball is the apple of every NBA scout's eye. six foot six, an amazing point guard, no doubt a top pick in the draft next year. And LeVar, like any good dad in one sense is just propping up his son. What a, he's an amazing basketball player, but LeVar got a little carried away that last week when he said, you know, actually he's such a good basketball player because he got some great genes. Now, I was a pretty good basketball player in my day. In fact, I could beat Michael Jordan anytime, (laughs) one-on-one. Oh, LeVar. (laughs) And we can laugh at it, and it's kind of funny, and it's a bit cartoon character-ish. You know, I wonder if it's really true or not, but I use that as an example to say, it's easy to say, ugh, I'm not like that, but don't underestimate how easy that kind of thing creeps, that little bit of exaggeration creeps in and leads to something more and more and more. Yeah, Lord, I, I know I didn't have much, but... Well, I mean, you chose me and not those people because surely there's something within me. Surely you saw the potential. Nope. That's not what Jesus wants us to see here. For without exception, all of us in our various and different ways are, were and are very bad risk for God incorporated. What God saw in you when he called you to be his own is simply this that you're a sin-sick sinner who desperately needed forgiveness. And until we understand that, brothers and sisters, we will not be able to sing with our true heart's desire and our mind's engagement, generous king or amazing love. How can it be? We'll lip the words, but we'll say, well, you know, I kind of, I deserve some of it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Save the wretch like me. Only then, when we understand what Mark is saying about human nature and the the basis of God's calling, only then can we stand in awe of God and say, generous king. See, what this story demonstrates here is that God is pleased to call whomever he wants and sometimes he calls the worst. But don't mishear me this morning. God not only calls the wicked... He called, you know, the the fishermen in chapter one there, they seem, according to the world standard, very normal people. But Mark is saying it doesn't matter if we are professors or prostitutes. The problem is the same for all of us. We're all rebels in the sight of God. Thank you, Lord, for the paralyzed man. And thank you, Lord, for the calling of Levi. If you can call him you surely can call and change me. Praise God. Now, why are these two stories together? What's the connection between them two? Well, I've already tipped my hand by saying the connection clearly is the issue of sin and forgiveness. But it's a certain type of forgiveness Mark wants us to see there. One that has a biblical understanding, a biblical definition. See, it's not just a forgiveness that cleanses our past, but it's a forgiveness that gives us a new life, a new future, And this is critical for us to notice and why these stories are together. We are all weak. We're all sinful, even when we don't feel like it. And that and only that is the starting place for a new life. Whether a new life with legs or a new life with a new job, in the case of Levi. J.C. Ryle, over 100 years ago, said about this passage, we know nothing aright in religion. We know nothing aright about Christianity if we think the sense of sin should keep us back from Christ. Maybe you've heard that from someone you know, you've invited the church. It's like, why don't you come to church with me? Oh, the walls would cave in if I stepped inside a church. Right? We know nothing about Christianity if we affirm that person at that point. Ryle goes on, he says, to feel our sins and to know our sickness is the beginning of real. Christianity. To be sensible to our corruption and abhor our own transgression is the first symptom of spiritual health. See, to see our real need is where Christianity begins, as Ryle said, but that's not where it ends, Mark says. Notice there in verse 12 and in verse 14, how Mark uses the same word to show the response of the paralytic And Levi. Verse 12, he said, go pick up your walk." And he rose and immediately went out. Verse 14, Jesus says, follow me. And Levi, he rose and followed him. See, the paralytic was a physical cripple. Levi was a spiritual cripple. And Mark is saying that to Jesus, it makes no difference at all. Forgiveness is getting hold of a cripple And releasing him so he can rise up and walk in a new way of life. It means that Levi the tax collector will become Matthew the gospel writer. Follow me, he says to Levi, for a lifetime of service. And that's what forgiveness means. Wiping out the past and starting on a new path for a lifetime of service. See, Jesus has, Mark wants us to make sure we know, Jesus has the authority here on earth to forgive sins. He has the power and authority to choose whoever he wants for his kingdom. What Mark says here, there's no partiality. He chooses the righteous. He chooses the rogue. He chooses the fisherman. He chooses the tax collector. He chooses the lame. He chooses the healthy. He chooses the young. He chooses the old. He chooses the person who comes to church for the first time and he chooses the person who's been here many, many times. Power and authority to forgive. Power and authority to choose. And power and authority to change. That's what we see in these stories. The universal need for our... We need healed, all of us, of our sin sickness. And God, and only God in Jesus Christ, has the amazing power to do so. To give us a new life. Let me put it this way. If Jesus was standing with us today, and he did the same thing, except he just went down and healed the man of his paralysis, and said, get up and walk, we would probably be the same, give the same response in verse 12. We've never seen anything like that. And then walk away and say, boy, I sure hope when I have problems like sickness and financial hardship and destitution, I sure hope when those problems come in that Jesus is around so he can do that for me like he did for this guy. See, we only would have identified ourselves with this young man on the mat only when we have real problems or big problems. But instead, Jesus amazingly weaves everyone's story together in this one miracle, in this one sentence, because everyone has the same sickness as the paralytic. We all can identify with the paralyzed man. We can all identify with Levi. And that's why verse 17 there is so key to the entire gospel. Jesus came to help those who are sick. The sickness of sin leaves us in such desperation that we should want to do anything, even burying through a roof and coming down in the middle of this meeting to figure out a way to get rid of that sickness. Everyone is sick, Jesus says. But according to verse 17, only those who know it will seek help. Friends, my appeal to you this morning is not to scoff this off as hyperbole. Or to shun it as being an overly negative or glib viewpoint of life. No, this is one of the greatest messages you'll ever hear. And I'm not talking about my message, I'm talking about this message that indeed you have a serious, grave problem. But the great news is that you have one that loves you enough to heal you right where you are, no qualifications no pretense, no conditions at all. Can I ask you not to neglect the call to go to the greatest physician for the most wonderful cure known to man, to be forgiven, reconciled, adopted, justified, considered as a son and daughter and perfect in his eye, Simply by putting your faith either for the first time or once again and renew it in confidence. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, generous King, you give. Now don't presume upon Jesus' forgiveness. When we presume, we fall into the Pharisees and scribes camp who say, I'm fine, I'm good enough, I'm not like those people. I don't do that, that, and that. No, only those who are sick call the doctor. Perhaps this is why so many of us don't like going to the doctor, because it will expose what we think is going on, blood tests or our aging bodies or whatever, and we're just scared. And what I want to say, understandably so, but you don't have to be scared this morning, because Jesus already knows whether you go to the doctors or not. When I grew up, each and every week, we would say the Apostles' Creed... And there was a statement in there that I always said, I think, why do we say that? Everybody knows it. It says, we believe, or we believe in the forgiveness of sins. I've come to realize that's an immensely important sentence. It really contains all of Christianity, doesn't it? It's bringing us out of one world and into the next. It brings us from one loyalty to a whole new, much more important loyalty. The only loyalty that matters. And so my question for you this morning is, Has God done that great redeeming work in you? Has he brought you out of that darkness? And if he has, are you still calling upon him as your great physician, pleading with him to get rid of that horrible illness called sin in your life? Oh, it's a lifelong process, but friends, he is faithful to his promise. He will do it. So in our state of weakness this morning, let us close, rather with a... We hear it for the first time or we're doing this for the 10,000th time. Let us ask the Lord to give us the strength to do what Levi and the paralytic did. Get up, rise up and follow him this day in the future. Would you join me in that prayer? Father God, we do thank you for your kindness and mercy. We ask you, Lord, that you will heal us. We thank you for the deposit and the guarantee of that work through your Holy Spirit. And Lord, if we're unsure this morning, please confirm in us. Indeed, you are doing that work. Lord, I ask, Lord, if anyone's unsure, but Lord, you haven't, they haven't sought you out as a great physician, please, please allow that to happen this morning. And for all of us together, Lord, let us seek you in all ways, mind, body, and spirit. Everything we do, at work, at home, at play, at rest, with everybody and every time and when we're by ourselves. You're a wonderful God, and let us see you as a wonderful king and the great physician of our souls. We love you, Lord. We thank you. Amen.